If you're here and you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hands and and hopefully we could uh, get one to you. Anyone need a Bible this morning? Amen. Everybody's got their Bible. Praise God. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, So we're in Ezra chapter 8, continuing our study uh, through the book of Ezra. Uh, We've titled this series, The Hand of God. In one sense, that's the recurring frame in the book of Ezra. You'll see that phrase used in some form three times in Ezra chapter 7 and another three times in Ezra chapter 8. And so these two chapters really hang together on that core theme of the hand of God. Now, even though the book is named Ezra, you'll remember that Ezra himself doesn't show up in the book until chapter 7 verse 1. The earlier parts of the book have focus on a governor named Zerubbabel and, uh, and the return of the people, the first wave of exiles uh, from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Um, that's chapters 1 to 6. Chapter 7 begins Ezra's ministry. Uh, and again, it's, it's Ezra that gives us this theme of the hand of God. And so really when we come to Ezra chapter 8, we're continuing what we studied last week in Ezra 7, where uh, men were sort of um, stirred up to return from Babylon to Jerusalem to continue the work of restoring Israel, a people who had been conquered by Babylon at this point about a hundred years prior. And God had promised, even before they were conquered, that he would raise up a king named Cyrus in 70 years and cause Cyrus to send the people back to Jerusalem uh, so that his temple would be rebuilt and his people would be rebuilt. So this is really the history of rebuilding a people who had been destroyed and devastated uh, by their enemies. And so Ezra is giving us this history. Now, if we want to outline Ezra chapter 8, we might do it by sort of locating those phrases, the hand of God. And we might divide the chapter into three sections based upon the three times that that phrase occurs in the chapter. And we might sort of outline it with these three points. Number one, the hand of God picks our priest. Picks our priest. That's Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 to 20. Number two, the hand of God provokes our praise. It provokes our praise. We'll see that in verses 21 to 22. And then number three, the hand of God provides our protection. Provides our protection. Verses 24 to 36. If you're sort of wanting to boil this sermon down into one point, you might, you might put it this way. That the hand of God provides everything the people of God need. The hand of God provides everything the people of God need. Look with me as we read Ezra chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pahath Moab, Eliahoani, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zatu, 
Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelomith, the son of Josephia, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonakam, those who came later, their names being Elephelet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I gather them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jareb, El-Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men. And for Jorib and El-Nathan, who were men of insight. And sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Casiphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides, 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 darics, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze, as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them 
And keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Miramoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with him were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for Ezra 8. Thank you for recording your words for us. Thank you for working in the life of the people of Israel and turning their life, O Lord, into a light for all the nations. Father, we pray that you would teach us about our own exile as we think about your people returning from exile here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points from Ezra 8. Uh, The first one is the hand of God picks our priests. So you see there in verses 1 to 14, uh, we get a genealogy of those who are returning with Ezra from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. This is the second wave of exiles in this book to return to Jerusalem. The first, as we said before, occurred under the reign of King Cyrus as Zerubbabel led the people back to Jerusalem. In that first wave, there were about 50,000 Israelites who returned to Jerusalem. Now, in the second wave, Ezra returns, if you count up the numbers that are listed there, Ezra returns with a little over 1,500 men with him. Verse 2 mentions three men in particular, Gershom, Daniel, and Hattush. Gershom was the son of Phinehas. Phinehas was born to Aaron's third son, Eleazar. That's significant because you remember that uh, Aaron's first two sons were killed for offering strange fire to God in false worship. Phinehas was a faithful priest, which Numbers 25 tells us was zealous for the name of the Lord. If you're interested in a riveting chapter of Scripture to read, read Numbers 25 a little later today. Phinehas is there. His son or descendant, Gershom, is part of the troop that comes back. Next up is Daniel. He was, also, he was descended from Ithamar. That's Aaron's fourth son. So his first two sons did not survive and didn't have any descendants. His second two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, received the priesthood, the the, the Aaronic priesthood. And here Daniel is a descendant of Ithamar, the the fourth son. So these two men can trace their line all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest. And then we got Hattush. He's from the kingly line of David. You remember David is the greatest king of Israel? 
To David, it was promised that one would sit on his throne and rule forever, that a descendant of David would be the Messiah. And you would think that that would be threatened by sending the people into exile, that maybe David's line would be wiped out. But here now we read of Hattush, and we get an indication of God keeping his promise to Israel to preserve David's line and to send them a Messiah through that line. Now, verses 3 to 14 list another 12 heads of households who return with Ezra. Uh, Perhaps these 12 symbolize the the 12 tribes of Israel. But in any case, these 1,514 men were recorded in this second wave. And we get this precise accounting, reminding us what we said a couple of weeks ago, that God numbers all his people. He's not rounding up. He's not rounding down. He's not generalizing. But he is numbering very specifically all of his people. And God will not leave the job of returning them from exile unfinished. He's not going to leave a man behind. This means, beloved, if you think somehow as a Christian that God has forgotten you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Our God counts his people, remembers his people, keeps his people down to the very last one. He's faithful that way. So God's not going to be satisfied with a rebuilt temple with only half his people to worship in it. He's only going to be satisfied when he returns all of his people. And you'll see his gathering of his people from scattered across Babylonia uh, in waves coming back to Israel. And, and I think there's something about God's attitude here that we want to inform our attitude as God's people. Two things. Number one, we need to be dissatisfied the way God is dissatisfied if all of our brothers and sisters are not gathering together to worship him. We shouldn't be indifferent to the missing. We want to develop an instinct to notice one another when we're not gathering in the assembly of God's people and develop a tendency to then just drop a note, make a call, go by, and to check on one another. For if God's heart is to assemble all of his people, then then the heart of all of his people ought to be uh, to assemble together to worship him. But there's a second thing here, too. We, We need to be dissatisfied if any of the elect in this community are not yet brought to faith in Christ. We, we should not rest as evangelists and prayer warriors until the house of God is full with all of those God is calling to himself in the gospel. It, this gathering that God does in Ezra is a gathering that continues in the gospel to all nations. Our God is a, a gathering God calling to himself a people from every nation, tribe, and language. And we've been placed here to aid in that gathering, to be used by God to gather people from this neighborhood. And not just from this neighborhood, but from the nations. And so there ought to be a kind of holy dissatisfaction if we're not seeing people converted if we're not sharing the gospel, if we're not calling people to follow Christ. For God has a people in this place, and he's gathering them, and it's our great privilege to be a part of that. So we see the Lord calling Israel back to himself, but there's a problem with the group that Ezra observes. Notice in verse 15, Ezra says there, I gather them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camp three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. 
There's like a whole tribe missing from this, this group of exiles. And, and the importance of this tribe is that they're, they're the descendants of Levi, and, and it's from Levi that we get the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. So there, there are like three problems with there not being any Levites in this group. Levites were the ones, number one, responsible for keeping the offerings. So with no Levites, Ezra couldn't travel and make the trip in accordance with God's word. And number two, with no Levites, they'd be unable to worship once they returned to Jerusalem. It was the Levites who would help in the leading of that worship. And, and number three, with no Levites then, what all that means is that there's no way to approach God. And no priest there to mediate between the people and their God. In the Old Testament system of worship, the Levites were essential to knowing and fellowshipping with God. So Ezra sees this, knows that this is a problem, and in verse 16, he, he sets a plan in motion. Notice there, he calls the leading men to himself. These were prominent, influential persons returning in the exile. He calls Jorab and El Nathan, who are described there as men of insight. They were wise and understanding. You remember what we're told in Ezra 7.10 about Ezra, that he had, he had set his heart to study the word of God and to obey it and to spread it, that Ezra was marked uh, as a man who was serious about God's word. I, I suspect that he had in mind Proverbs 26.6 when he selected these men. Proverbs 26.6 says, whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Ezra wants to trust this message the faithful and wise men. And so he selects them. Verse 17, he then sends them to a man named Ido, who lived in Kasifia. Kasifia is near modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. The name of the city has something to do with silver. It's difficult to translate. Maybe it could be translated the place of silversmiths or uh, translated as um, silver in that place. And in any case, that's where Ido was. And he was a leading man as well, and he apparently was in charge of the priests and the temple servants uh, in that town. So Ezra sends to him with a message saying, send to us ministers of the house of our God. They go, and verses 18 to 20 report this, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Machli, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18 also, Hashabiah, and with, his, and with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So their Levite problem was fixed. Sherebiah was not only a Levite, notice, he's a man of discretion, he's wise, Modest, self-controlled. He had great qualities for serving as a Levite and, and serving these returning exiles. Now they could travel with the offering money, and now they could worship once they returned to Jerusalem. But the key thing to note is right there in the beginning of verse 18, and by the good hand of our God on us. That's how they received their priests. It was God's hand that picked their priests. They had need, but God had to supply it. And when God picks the priests for his people, he doesn't pick hirelings. 
He doesn't pick lackeys. The Father sends men of discretion, men of character to bless the saints. Now, all this may seem like ancient history, things going on in the life of a people that we have never met and know little about, until we realize that we need a priest too. It's still true that no one can come to God unless they have a priest to represent them before God and to make an offering for them to God. That's what the priests did in the Old Testament. They wore a turban with a plaque on it that said, holy unto the Lord. And so they represented God's holiness to the people. But in making sacrifices to God, they represented the people to God. They were the mediators between God and his people. And it's still the case that without a mediator, we cannot come to God who is holy and we are not. It's still the case that without one making sacrifices to us, for us, that, that we cannot satisfy God's anger against sin and thereby be reconciled to God. Things ain't changed. We still need a priest, but not like the Levites. And not like the priests of Roman Catholicism who have no root in the scripture. But we Christians, we have a better priest, better than all the Levites and better than all of the man-made priests. We have the great high priest. I want you to see this in the Bible. So keep your finger in Ezra chapter 8. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is worth, well, it's worth being preached all the time, but I just want to pick out a a couple of verses because between chapters 3 and 4 all the way down to about chapter 11, this idea of the great high priest keeps weaving through the book of Hebrews. And and I want to show you who our high priest is and why he's better. So Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 to 10 tell us that we have a a perfect high priest who brings eternal salvation. Notice there in verse 7, Hebrews 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see what we're being told about Jesus? First of all, he, he took upon himself our flesh. He lived in human likeness, and in that flesh he suffered. He suffered so much that he gave up loud cries and tears. He's pleading to God on behalf of man, and God hears him. And and in his suffering, Jesus is perfected. Not that he had a blemish before then, but, but he has completed what God has sent him to do, namely to die in the place of sinners, and by his sacrificial death, he is now bringing salvation, eternal salvation, not temporary salvation, not a fragile salvation, but an everlasting salvation to everyone who obeys him in faith. Because he's our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, look with me at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. For not only do we have a perfect high priest who brings salvation, but we have a permanent high priest who is able to save. Verse 23, Hebrews 7. It's comparing him to the 
the priest in the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. It says the former priests, those are the Levites, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, verse 24, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see the contrast there. The old Levites had a death problem. The death rate was one to one. They could not continue in that office. They could not continue in that ministry. Jesus ain't got no death problem. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated the grave. And so they died and had to meet their maker. He always lives. He never dies. He continues forever. And notice here now, because he always lived, he always is able to make intercession for us. He's always able to save. There's no doubt that if you come to Jesus in faith, it's not like you're flipping a coin. It's not like you're taking a chance. This Jesus is alive, and not only is he alive, but he's praying for us. He's interceding for us, and he is able to save us from the judgment of God that comes upon the sins of the world. He's so much better. And God has picked him to be our priest. So you can come to God without being an Israelite. You can come to God without being Jewish and, and in the old system of Jewish worship. Now all nations, all people can come to God because God has appointed a perfect and permanent high priest who is Jesus, his son. He brings eternal salvation and he is able to save to the uttermost anyone who comes near to him by faith. Come near to God through Christ. The hand of God picks our priests. But now notice, secondly, the hand of God, going back to Ezra 8, provokes our praise. It provokes our praise. Once the people have their priests, Ezra declares in verse 21, it's time for a fast. A fast is a period of time when you, you do not eat or do not drink in order to focus on spiritual things. Notice now in verse 21, Ezra says, I proclaim the fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God and to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So their fast there had two spiritual goals. Number one, to humble themselves before God. And numbers two, to seek or to pray to God for a safe journey for everyone concerned. I think that's a powerful example. Fasting and praying are the correct, correct way to begin any spiritual work of God. To humble ourselves before God and to seek his blessing. But, but we tend to have a problem, don't we? I mean, things like self-reliance and pride. They... they, they they're constant challenges for every human being. You got two legs and two arms and a beaten heart and human. You're touched by the temptation to self-reliance and pride. We're all tempted to slide into thinking that we have everything under control, aren't we? We're all tempted to act first, then pray to God to clean it up. 
when we do that, we're being self-reliant. We're not being humble before God. We're not expressing our dependence on him, our need for him. We're not expressing that we can do nothing apart from him. We're expressing quite the opposite. So fasting is one way to, for us to keep ourselves humble before God and, and to keep ourselves mindful of God. The exiles used that, that period of fasting to, to pray. And, and prayer is another way of expressing our dependence upon God, our, our need for God. It's when we talk to God and ask God for the things that we need. And they prayed specifically that God would keep them safe on their journey. And so that, that combination of fasting and praying put them in the right posture before their God. But it's not simply because they're dependent on God that they fast and pray. Verse 22 gives us another reason. Notice there. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. I like this. I like this. Ezra says he was ashamed to ask the king for protection. The reason he's ashamed to ask the king for protection is because, notice, he says that we, so all of Israel, had been boasting on God. They had been thinking about the hand of God and had been praising God in the hearing and the presence of the king and all of his officials. We had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. Now, I love this. They had been praising God for being the kind of God that blesses those who seek him. They had boasted in God's power and boasted in God's presence so much that now to ask the king for protection would seem like either God wasn't able or they weren't really seeking God. We ought to so praise God that it would be an embarrassment to ask others to protect us. I mean, Ezra and people, they, they, they have praised their way into a corner where the only thing they could do with integrity is call upon the name of the Lord. We only boast in God like this when we truly know and trust God's ways, don't we? I love it. Ezra's theology, his, his testimony about God's character, it, it, it forces him to rule out dependence upon kings and chariots and horsemen. It forces him to trust in the name of the Lord his God. When Ezra says that the hand of, uh, of God is for, for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath um, is on all who are against him, who, who forsake him, well, he's doing good theology right there. Now, we want to be careful with all theology, including this one. That sentence is not a promise. It's not a law. It's not something that you can use to manipulate God. That's the error of the prosperity gospel. All right? It's also not to be used to decide whether or not God is pleased with us. Sometimes those who do seek God also suffer. Right? So this is not a guarantee that we won't suffer. I mean, after all, these are exiles, aren't they? These are not 
rich, posh elites. Suffering is not necessarily, beloved, an indication that God is displeased with us. It's not what this text means. So we need to be careful with this sentence. This sentence is really about the character of God primarily, not the situations that we're in primarily. It's really about God's own nature and way in the world. This is the kind of God that God is. He blesses those who seek him and he punishes those who forsake him. And so the question becomes, do we believe this about God's character so much so to such an extent that we would make it our boast and we would respond to its truth? Do we brag on God because he rewards those, as Hebrews says, who diligently seek him and, and he punishes those, as all the Bible says, the, who forsake him? Will we trust our journey and our lives to such a God as this? I hope we will because that's what the godly do throughout the Bible. Psalm 44, 8. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boast in life if we are Christians, ought to be the God who gave us life through Christ. And we should boast in him and know him so well that we're willing to trust ourselves to him and depend upon him rather than others. And beloved, if God is not our boast, then it may mean one of two things. One, we've not yet gotten to know him deeply enough. Or two, we're putting our circumstances so closely to our eyes that we can't see anything else. And we're forgetting that he's greater than our circumstances. And so the question is, beloved, where is our boast? Is it in the Lord? Or is it elsewhere? The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. You've probably already noticed something else about that sentence. This is the same logic that is found in the central message of Christianity. It's found in the gospel. The gospel message can be boiled down to this fact. That there are only two ways to live. We either seek God or we reject God. And if you're not seeking God, beloved, you are rejecting God. The result of seeking God is protection. Protection from judgment, protection from wrath, protection from all the things we deserve because of our sin. Oh, the result of rejecting God is, well, we have no protection. We stand and face the full onslaught of God's judgment, of God's wrath against sin. God's wrath is his holy, righteous judgment in hell against all who forsake or run away from or reject him, who reject his high priest. 
Jesus' son. So there's only two ways to live. Seek him and find his, his, his protection. Forsake him and face only his wrath. And the only way to seek God, as we've been saying, and to find God is through his only son, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, God's chosen, hand-picked high priest who turns away God's wrath with the voluntary sacrifice of himself in our place. That's what's happening with the cross. That's why we celebrate the cross, because God's son died on that cross and in that death was suffering the horrific judgment of God against the world. So he takes our place. And for those of us who are in Christ through faith, who repent of our sins and trust him as Lord and Savior, Christ becomes our shelter. He becomes our tower. He becomes the one who shields us from the wrath of God. And more than that, he's the one who gives us his very own righteousness. So that it's not like we are cowering criminals hiding behind Jesus. And if only God could get around Jesus, we'd be destroyed. No, it is as though we are confident children clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, standing with Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees his son. He takes away our sin. He gives us his righteousness. And in Christ, we face the fear of judgment no more. Our consciences are cleansed. Our hearts are made new. Our desires are changed such that we love God and seek to serve God. Indeed, the Bible says we become new creations. The old is passed away and, and a brand new creation is made. And we are never to be separated from God again. And all of our exile turns into a journey from wandering lost in sin to traveling directly to glory with God. This is the central logic of, of the gospel. There's only two ways to live, to seek God through faith in his son in which we get all the riches and treasures of Christ himself or to forsake God in rejecting his son, in which we suffer all the judgment that we deserve. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Don't delay another moment if you're hearing you're not a Christian. Don't fiddle around with this, this truth. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to confess your sins to God. Today is the day to confess that your sins are not your friends. They are destroying your life and they're making you guilty before God. And today is the day to put your faith, your confidence, your hope in Jesus as the only Savior who takes away your sin and the only Savior who will give you righteousness before God. And today is the day to be a new creation and to follow Jesus in the obedience that comes from faith. Don't waste another moment. Don't waste another day. Call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved. If you got questions about that or want to talk more about that, we would delight to stick around after the service, answer any questions, see anybody that looks like they know that what, what it means to be a Christian. Talk with them. And if somebody asks you and you don't know what it means, you and them come to me and let's talk together. Let's talk together about what it means to be Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. The good hand of God picks our priests. The good hand of God provokes us to praise. Finally, the good hand of God provides our protection. Verse 23 summarizes the rest of the chapter, really. 
So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The words implored and entreaty mean beg. They begged. When they prayed, they didn't offer little cute prayers. They didn't offer prayers so short that they forgot them when they got up. They went down on their knees and they laid hold to the throne of grace. They implored and they, they entreated. They were like the, the widow that Jesus uses in a parable in the New Testament. The widow goes before an unrighteous judge and she pleads her case and the judge doesn't want to hear it. But because she keeps coming and because she keeps pleading, the judge relents and says, look, I give you whatever you want. Leave me alone. Now, the difference between that judge and our God is that our God is not grudging. We, we go, we beg, we plead, we entreat. But notice what the text says at the end. And he listened to our entreaty. Beloved, don't be too proud to beg God in prayer because God is not too proud to listen to your prayer. Think about this. They prayed on earth and God listened in heaven. You and I can talk to God. God will hear us. He will answer us. And we have precious promises in the New Testament that this is precisely the case. So John chapter 14, verse 14, the Lord Jesus says there, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Write that down. Take it to the bank. John 14, 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence we have toward him, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, which is how you define uh, in my name, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have our requests. The problem with our prayer lives, well, let me just talk about my prayer life. The problem with my prayer life, it's not that we ask too much. It's that we ask too seldom and too little. Or we don't ask according to God's will. James says we ask to consume it upon our own lusts. But prayer should be like oxygen to us. It should be our life breath because we have a God who hears us and has decided that through prayer he would act and change things. Notice they, that they all asked, they, they got all that they asked for, provided by the hand of God. Verse 24, Ezra sets the 12 priests apart. Verses 25 and 27, Ezra entrusts the priests with the offering. They, they count it out exactly. Verses 28 to 30, Ezra consecrates the priests and, and the offering. He declares them as, as holy, which means that they can only, those priests and those offerings can only be used in service to God. And he charged the priests to guard the offering uh, throughout the journey. Verses 32 to 34 uh, tells us that they arrive on the fourth day in the temple, delivered the offering to the temple where everything was recorded. And verses 35 to 36 tells us that they offered the burnt offerings to God for every tribe of Israel and then spread the, the king's orders to the satraps and governors. But verse 31 is the key. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. Their protection was provided by their God. Not by kings, not by armies, not by horses, but by prayer to their prayer answering God. The hand of God picks our priests, 
provokes our praise, provides our protection. So, can we not, should we not, trust the hand of God in everything? Shouldn't we, to use the language of the New Testament, live by faith, not by sight? We're saved by faith, but we must also go on living by faith. Faith is like the doorway into God's house, but it's not just the doorway. It's also the hallways and every room. Every room of that life is filled by faith. So everything we do ought to be an expression of trust, reliance, humble dependence upon God and faith in the goodness of God. The exile sought God for protection. The pilgrim, exiled, sojourning Christian church ought to seek God for our protection. So let's try to apply this in a couple of ways. There are Christians who believe America should have a big military. They think the most advanced military is necessary for the country's protection. But Ezra and the exiles really challenge that, don't they? I mean, the country can have a massive military. That's not wrong in and of itself. The question is, should Christians think that that's the way to be protected? Shouldn't we place our trust in the hand of God? Perhaps we are in need of a bigger military because the church is in need of greater prayer. Or there are Christians who believe government should offer a lot of programs. I think the role of government is to protect people from falling on hard times, to create safety nets, and the more programs, the better. But as we're in the exiles, challenge that, don't they? Our country can have a massive social service program. That's not wrong in and of itself. But should a Christian think that that's the way to be protected? Or oughtn't we to trust ourselves to the good hand of God in faith and obedience? Or third example. There are Christians who think the government should pass laws that protect Christians from, from various things. It protects us from taxes and protects religious freedom and so on. They think the government is to protect the church from cultural changes and persecution. But Ezra and the exiles really challenge that, don't they? They fear ambushes and enemies along the way. Our country can enact laws that protect religious freedom. That's not wrong. That's actually good. But should Christ's church look to Caesar to be protected for believing in Christ? Should we place our trust in kings and princes or in the God of the universe. What's challenging about Ezra 8 is that these people are journeying to a country that most of them have never lived in. They're journeying back to Jerusalem. Most of these folks have been raised in exile. It's been a hundred years since Jerusalem was conquered. They know that there are enemies on every hand along this 900-mile trek back home. And, and, And what challenges us as we read their example is their profound faith in God and his hand as the one that guides him 
and protects them. They seem to understand that everything they need comes from the good hand of God. That's the entire point of Ezra 7 to 8. God's hand provides everything that God's people need. In chapter 8, the, the people need a priest and they need protection. Both come by the outstretched hand of God. And because we know that God's hand is with them, they, they live by faith. They, they praise God with such boasting that they are ashamed to think of trusting anyone else to provide what God should provide for them. Beloved, let us be like the saints in Ezra 8. Let, let our praise paint us into corners where we have to look to God in order to have integrity. Playing it safe and quieting our praise is really unbelief and self-reliance. If we would be faithful exiles, rebuilding the people of God, we have to look to the hand of God. Let's pray together. Father, all of us in this room are in need. Some of us feel our need. And some of us have enough comfort to deceive ourselves about our need. But your word is true. We can do nothing apart from you. And even though you've been good to us and blessing us in various ways, providing for us in various ways, your word tells us that your goodness, your patience, your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Lead us to turn back to you and not to trust even the good things you give us, but to trust you. To look to your hand and not our hands. To look to your hand and not another person's hands. And we pray that you would help us to do that. We pray, O oh Lord, that uh, as we feel our need of you in our personal finances, in our relationships, uh, in, in our marriages and in our parenting, as we feel our need for you in our workplaces and among our neighbors, oh God, help us to praise you because we know your good hand is on those who seek you. And help our praise to be so consistent and so zealous that we would feel ourselves ashamed to then trust something else or someone else. Oh God, we pray that we would be enabled by your grace and your spirit to stake our lives on the good theology, the good teaching that we gather from your word. To walk in a manner worthy of Christ. To walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.